you please take your Bible and turn to John chapter 15? John 15. We'll be focusing on the first six verses, but for context, we'll read the the first 11 verses of John chapter 15. Starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch, as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you, comp- if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Would you pray with me? Father, it is our desire to do exactly what you have commanded us to do, to richly abide in you. And Lord, we realize our weakness, we realize our frailty. And Father, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would impress your word upon our hearts this morning that we would draw closer to you, that you would change, convict, encourage, exhort, that you would do with, do with us what you will for your own name's sake. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. As a reminder, this passage takes place in the context of the upper room discourse. Shortly before the Lord's death and resurrection, he's gathered his disciples with him, and he has this last sermon, if you will, with his disciples. Now, already last week, if you remember from chapter 14, he he sought to bring comfort to them. In light of his leaving and departure, he wanted to comfort them with this truth of what? Your comfort lies lies where? In your home. That you have a home. That this world is not it. He later says in that chapter that not only is your comfort found in the fact that you have a home, but your comfort is also going to be in the person of the Holy Spirit who will indwell you. He sought to bring them comfort. Now, He moves on from comfort, and now he moves on, starting in chapter 15, not just to provide comfort, but now with admonition. In other words, how are they supposed to live? How do they live now that he is leaving? The expectation for his disciples now is not that the good works that they saw would stop. I mean, they saw him do great miracles. You look at Christ's ministry, it's it's marked with miraculous signs. They saw him do great things, and he commanded them likewise, do great things, do greater things. They were not to stop. Kingdom work for the disciples was not over. Just like for us, kingdom work for the glory of God is not over. Your work as a kingdom citizen is not over. It's never completed. If you're in Christ, he saved you for good works. 
He saved you so that you would bear fruit. If you want to know a purpose for your life, your purpose, as we know as the Westminster Catechism is, is to bring glory to God, delight yourself in God. You are created to glorify God. The kingdom work never ends. You are to be used for his glory. So not only can you be comforted just like his disciples with the future hope that you have of home, there is a present joy for you now because your joy is connected with the glory that you find in God. That as you give glory to God in obedience, you will find greater depths of joy. So the disciples were not only to be comforted with the fact that they have a home and that the Holy Spirit, God, would dwell within them. They were to be comforted with the fact that they can have an abiding, a present joy in their life now. Your joy is connected with how much you remain in this truth, remain in your God. That Christian joy is found in a vibrant life. That the vibrant life of the believer is found in walking in obedience. We all want this. Believer, if you're in Christ, I know you want a vibrant life. You want to live a full, vibrant Christian life full of joy. I hope you would want that. I think we all would want that. But the question is, how do we have that fullness of joy now? That our Savior is not presently with us. We're not in the kingdom. How do we have joy? I, begin, I think he begins to answer this question by using the illustration of the vine in the passage we read. He uses this illustration of a vine to show how his disciples were to produce the fruit so that his disciples would have joy. At the end of this section here, we read in verse 11, he, he, he says these things to them so that they could have his joy. The purpose is for them to be joyful, to have that abiding joy. Believer, your faith should bring joy. It should bring joy. And it's never this joy that you have is never going to be, uh, in, in a sense, complete in a sense of, of stopping joy. This joy will be an increasing joy, a joy that is always growing, a joy that is always increasing, a joy that is always evolving in light of who Christ is. Your joy should always be transforming your entire life. You should be marked with joy. If you're not marked with joy, then let me just gently ask you, where in this illustration are you missing? Where do you fall in light of this illustration that the Lord gives us of the vine? Because your, your faith should bring forth joy, and it should impact your life in all realms. That Christ wants his disciples to have joy. Christ wants you to have joy. And that's why he uses this illustration. He says these things so that they would have his joy. Now let's examine, within this, this chapter, let's examine three relationships of this vine. We're going to examine three relationships of the vine. And we should, as we dive into this, this should encourage you to be joyfully dependent upon the Lord. That as we look at these three relationships, they should encourage you to be joyfully dependent upon the Lord. As he's explaining who he is and what he's done, the result for you, just like the disciples, should be an abiding and abounding joy. As a reminder, this, this passage is um, the, in, the, in the upper discourse. But it's also the seventh and the last I am statement within the Gospel of John. We've been working through sporadically over the past several months the different I am statements in the Gospel of John. And each one of the I am statements giving us a clearer picture, a more in-depth picture of who Christ is and his work as Savior and Lord. 
That's what all he's doing here. He's, I'm the light. I, 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 am, I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. All of this points to the fact that he is saying that I am, I am Yahweh in the flesh. I am God, very God. And let me tell you more about who I am and what I am going to do and what that means for you. These are all the I am statements that point to who Christ is. And in this I am statement, the seventh and the last one in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses a common metaphor for his disciples, a common metaphor of the vine, and one that everyone would immediately understand in that context there. That every Jewish ear, all the disciples, when he referenced himself as the vine, that immediately brought a clear picture to themselves of really what is the vine and what its purpose is. Because culturally, the abundance of vines and vineyards in that land, especially in that Palestine land, it was seen as an expression of God's favor. That when you saw a vine with, with grapes on it, rich grapes and an abundance of fruit, that was an expression, a sign of God's favor upon that land. In fact, the grapevine is used throughout the Old Testament to symbolize the fertility of the land. But here, in chapter 15, Jesus says he's not just the vine, but look how he describes himself, that he is the true vine. The true vine. On the Maccabean coin, there's a vine on the coin to symbolize Israel. That some historians even say that in the temple that, that Herod kind of uh, renovated, he, he put and embroidered a gold vine along the front of the temple to symbolize just the prosperity of the land, the prosperity of the temple. And so this time here, this idea of a, van, a vine, it was used to speak of Israel most often. That Israel in the Old Testament is seen to have been brought out of Egypt and planted as a vine uh, among the land. That Israel is described as being a vine. For example, Psalm chapter 80, verse 8, it says that you brought a vine out of Egypt and you drove out the nations and planted it. Again, referring to Israel as the vine, planted out of Egypt. I mean, brought out out of Egypt and they were planted. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, says that yet I planted you, this is the Lord speaking, I planted you, Israel, a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine, he says. I think the clearest picture is in Isaiah chapter 5, if you'll turn there real quick, of Israel and the vine. But Isaiah chapter 5, he, he starts off in verse 1, that let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. Verse 2, he dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. At the end of verse 2, what happened after he planted this vine. But it produced only worthless ones. Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not already done? Why then I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce what? Worthless ones. Now's the judgment. Verse 5, so now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard, Israel. I'll remove its hedge, and it will be consumed, and I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also char- charge the clouds to, to, to no rain on, charge the clouds to no rain, to no rain, no rain on it, to not rain on it. Wow, I'm sorry. Um, you see in this picture here that he's, he's condemning Israel, and he describes them constantly as his vine. Not just a vine, but the choice vine. 
I planted that vine, and I expected it to produce what? Good grapes. And instead, what did it produce? Worthless ones. Nothing. And because of that, the Lord hashed out judgment upon judgment upon his people because they did not do what he designed them to do, produce the fruit. MacArthur said it this way, that Israel's apostasy made it an empty vine and for a long time disqualified as a channel for God's blessings. In other words, Israel did not do what it was called to do. It was called to be a a fruitful vineyard that points to the majesty of God for all the other nations to see that this is the great God, and they failed to do that. And so now in chapter 15, Jesus comes to the scene. He now affirms that I am now not the vine, but I am now the true vine. I am the vine that accomplishes its purpose, that I am the one that brings the blessing that it was designed to do from the beginning. I am the true vine. And in this metaphor, let's look at the first relationship that he describes. The first relationship is the father's attention to the vine. Because the father is described as the vine dresser in verse 1. I am the true vine. The father is the vine dresser. In other words, he's the, the vine dresser, the gardener, the owner, the keeper of the garden. Now, as the gardener, he takes care of the vine and its branches. The, all the vine, all the vineyard, he's responsible to make sure that it produces good fruit. Now, as the, the father is the vine dresser, the vines require consistent and attentive care. For any vineyard, that in order for it to produce good crops, you have to be, be, pay careful attention to the vine and to make sure that, that each branch is fruitful and, and bringing forth that good fruit. That's what a good vine dresser does. So here's what we must understand about this metaphor. The goal of the vine is what? Fruit. To produce fruitfulness, right? To produce grapes. It displays the glory of that land. That if you see a fruitful vineyard, you look at it and say, wow. Look at that soil. I want some of that soil. Look at that fruit. You want to produce grapes. Even more, look at verse 8. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. That when there's much fruit, there's faithfulness of his servants, it glorifies God. That's what it does. A fruitful vineyard glorifies the vine dresser. So he sees the fruit. Anyone sees the fruit, and what do you do? You bring glory to the one who pruned and shaped that branch. Now, in order, to, in order to maintain this faithful, this fruitful vine, what does a good vine dresser do? What does a good gardener do in order to maintain a fruitful vine? He has to prune it. He has to prune it. This process here, it, it produces stronger branches, but a greater fruit yield. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, what does he do? He takes away... And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. The purpose here is if it's a good branch, if it's bearing fruit, a good gardener will do what? He will cut and prune it so that it produces even more fruit. Here, even in a vineyard, this pruning, is, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intense skill that it takes. If the vine dresser cuts too far from the bud, the stub will die. But if he cuts too close, if too cut close to it, the bud it will maybe damage. So you can't cut too close. You can't also cut, cut too far away. It is yet to cut at the right 
precise location so that it cuts it just enough so that when it cuts, it produces eventually more and more fruit. It's, it's an intense skill that you have to play attentive, close, um, pay very close attention to the vine, to the branch, so that you don't hurt it too much, but also that you hurt it just enough so that the goal is to produce even more richer, sweeter grapes. You have to pay attention to it. The father here is described as the vine dresser, but the goal of cutting and pruning is to produce more fruit in that branch. Now, how does that fruit come? How does God produce fruit in your life, believer? How does he do that? How does he design to make you more strong, produce more fruit? How does he do that in you? Through pain and through discomfort. Do you get that? That's how he produces fruit in you. It is through pain and discomfort. He prunes you, and he does it as an act of love. That the pruning is a slow process, that no vine dresser can't go through the branch and just cut wherever he wants willy-nilly. That's just reckless. That no, he's, he takes attentive care to the branch, exactly what it needs, where is it weak, what needs to be done, and let, let me prune it because I love and care for this branch so much that I want it to produce good fruit. I'm concerned about the branch, and so let me do what it needs most. Let me prune it. Pruning is a slow process that God does through your life, that through every pain and hardship, it's a slow process, but it's a fruitful process that he has designed, that God never wastes anything in your life. Nothing that's ever taken from you is ever wasted, believer, that nothing is ever wasted. He uses everything. That how does he prune? How does God prune you? He does it through many ways. He prunes you through providence. That everything that happens in your life is ordained by God's hand to bring to his intended end, to bring himself glory, to produce fruit so that you would also grow and be fruitful, but he would also be glorified. He does it through providence in your life. Everything in your life. He does it through interventions. He intervenes where necessary. He removes where necessary. He gives where necessary. Pruning is a, is, is a design that God has for your life so that you would be stronger and more fruitful. Now, as common as a metaphor this is to us, I think we understand this pruning. I don't think we really understand it. Because he prunes fruitful branches, because it says, so that they bear more fruit. If you're bench pressing, if you want to increase your weight, how do you do that? You put on another slab. You put on more and more. You put on more weight. Why? So that eventually you could lift more weight and you can get more strong. And so you can reach the intended effect that you're desiring to do in your workout. You add more weight to your workout so that you become more strong. That's the purpose. No pain, no gain, right? Now, when you're bench pressing, you don't complain at the weight. You don't complain at it because you understand you submit to it and you submit to its purpose. It's designed to make me stronger. You don't complain at the weight, but rather you you endure it, focusing so that you can build more weight and build more muscle. Imagine having the same perspective when you're being pruned. That when it hurts and when the pain comes, imagine having the same perspective of realizing, though this does hurt, I understand its intended purpose. And so I can endure it well because I realize that by God's providential hand, he is designing to do something good in me. 
There are no accidents in the Christian life. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, that we must fix our eyes not on the blade that cuts, but on the hand that holds the blade. I think that says a lot. Don't fix your eyes when, it, when the pruning comes. When your time comes to get pruned, which it will constantly, when it comes, don't look more at the knife. Look at the hand that's holding the knife. Because realize what he's doing in that. That God desires to bear more fruit, not crush you. He doesn't want to take your branch out. He wants your branch to produce more fruit. And when we understand the simple truth, we can handle pruning a lot better. When you understand that simple truth, when pruning comes your way, you can endure it better. So as you mature in your faith, you realize the Lord's purpose is for every providential pain to produce more fruit in you. Now, Before we go further, I think a fair question to ask is, is, is what is the fruit? What is the fruit that he's designing to, to, to give, to yield? What is that fruit? It's not defined here in this passage, but clearly the, the qualities of Christian character are in mind here. That immediately when you think of fruit, what do you think of? Fruits of the Spirit. That's, that's the first thing that comes to your mind, I'm sure. The fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. That that is likely a part of that fruit that he's yielding in. That, that love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self, all the fruits of the Spirit. Right? That's, that's definitely in mind here of bearing more fruit. God wants to bear that fruit so that you bear more love, more patience, more joy, more endurance, more faithfulness. All these things God wants to work in you. But I don't think we can confine it just to that because from those fruits of spirit come action. You look at Matthew chapter 3 verse 8. It says, therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is a fruit. That as you realize and turn from sin and turn to Christ, you bear fruits of righteousness. That living a life of repentance, constantly repenting as you realize your sin, returning from sin, turning to Christ, bears fruits of righteousness. That you should be marked with repentance because that is also a fruit. So sometimes pruning involves repentance. All these things, the fruits of the Spirit, repentance, it, it must pour out in service as well for others. That it's not only about the character of the branch, but it's also about what the branch can do for the, the benefit of the other branches, if you will. That, that the fruits of the Spirit should mark itself with service and love for others. That all these fruits are ultimately designed to be pleasing to the Lord. One, put it, one person put it this way, that fruit is a contribution. Anything you do or are that adds value, that expands the kingdom, that brings glory to God. That is a benefit to God or his people. I say that again. Fruit is contribution. Anything you do or are that adds value, that expands a kingdom, that brings glory to God, that is a benefit to God or his people. Any good change in your heart or your life. In other words, anything that adds value, benefit to the kingdom, for the benefit of others and for the glory of God, that's, that's fruit. That as that love that pours out of your heart, you decide to serve and to to lay your life down for others, as you decide to benefit others for God's glory, it's fruit. That it's about building his kingdom. And so the Father has in mind to build and to yield more fruit. But there's one prerequisite to bearing fruit. There's one prerequisite to bearing fruit. In verse 3, that you are already clean, Because of the word which I have spoken to you. What's that prerequisite? You must be cleansed. You must be cleansed. 
Because before he goes into the believer's relationship to the vine, he says first, you have already been cleansed. You have already been cleaned. That you have to be cleansed. That this idea of being pure. That this idea of, of being cleansed is because you've been cleansed and fit to bear fruit. Now he says they're clean, and why are they clean? Because of the word which I've spoken to you. That they're clean because of the word. What is that word? That word essentially is not just one singular word. The word is the message. So they have already been cleansed because of the message he has already given to them. They've been cleansed, essentially we can put in our terms, they've been cleansed by the gospel of Christ. They've been cleansed by his saving message. So they are cleansed and now fit to bear fruit. That is the prerequisite, to be cleansed. And that's why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, and the common verse we know about husbands loving your wives, as, as Christ loved the church, what he says after that is that love the church and gave himself up for her. And why did Christ do that? So that he might sanctify her, right? The process of sanctification, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, that was what Christ wants to do for the church. Having already cleansed and purified and washed the church by his own sacrifice, now, he says, now walk in that. And he wants to sanctify them. And that's what Christ is saying here is that, is that now you've already been cleansed. You have already been regenerated. You have already been washed. You have already been cleansed. And now you're in a condition fit to bear fruit. That must happen. So now that you've been cleansed, the believer is called to abide in it. Abide in it. Which leads us to our second relationship with the vine. The believer's abiding in the vine. The father's his attention is attentive to the vine, but now the believers abide in the vine. The believer is called to abide in the vine. So now according to the Lord's metaphor, that he is the vine, Christ is the vine, the Father is the vine dresser, and believer in Christ, you are the branches he's speaking of. You're the branches. Having been cleansed, the expectation of the branch is to do one thing, bear fruit. That's the expectation of the the branch. Now that you've been cleansed, branch, here's one expectation. Bear fruit. Do what you have been designed to do. Bring forth fruit. If the branch does not grow, as in verse 2 it says, it's taken away. But what we must understand as we look at this, believer, is the command is not for you to bear fruit. That's not what he's commanding you to do, believer. He's not commanding you bear fruit. What is he commanding you to do? In verse 4, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. That is the command. Abide in him, he in you, and then what? Then you bear fruit. To abide in the vine, Christ, and he abides in you, that brings the fruit. In verse 5, that I am, excuse me, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, what happens? He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. You could do nothing. We're expected to bear fruit, but you are unable to bear fruit of yourself. You're expected to bear fruit, believer, but you can't do that of yourself. Hear this now. What he's not saying is that you can't do things without him. right? He's not saying you can't do things without him. He's not saying you can't earn a living without him. He's not saying you can't earn, uh, raise a family without him. He's not saying you can't serve or lead in a ministry without him. But what he's saying is you can't bear fruit without him. So you can be busy, 
but does not mean you're fruitful. He's not saying you can't do the things you're supposed to do, but what he's saying, if you want to bear fruit, how do you bear fruit? Abide in him. Busyness does not equal fruit. So he's not saying that, the, that the, the, he's not pointing out the things that you're not able to do, but you can't bear that spiritual fruit without him. It's just as foolish as, as me going to the most prosperous vineyard here in the central coast, and I love the fruit so much that I go over and cut off a branch. And I take it home, I said, babe, I, I got a branch of this rich, rich, sweet grapes. Look what I got. You know, it'll look good for a few days, maybe even a week. And people may marvel at it. Wow, look at those fruit. Look at all that that's on that branch. Is that yours? Yeah, that's mine. Oh, wow, is that, it's right there? Yeah, it's on the fence. I have it right there. I, I stapled it to the fence and look at my fruit. Man, that's some good fruit. But what's going to happen if I try to eat from that vine in a couple weeks? Man, it'll be sour. It's going to be bitter. It's going to be worthless. And so though it may be a fruitful branch at one point, if it's not connected to the vine, that branch is worthless. So we can do many things, but he's saying here, if you want to bear fruit, fruit that glorifies God, fruit that is beneficial, that you can eat, fruit that is nutritious, if you want to bear that kind of fruit, you can't do that by yourself. You must abide in me. And that is because an independent branch cannot produce fruit without abiding in Christ, which is our imperative. The branch's relationship to the vine is that it needs to abide in it in order to bear fruit. To abide in it. And what does it mean for us? We know if this is our command, we should have a good grasp on what it is. What does it mean for you if you are commanded to abide in Christ? In order that you bear fruit, what does it mean for you to abide? Literally, you could say it means to remain. That to abide literally means to remain. So remain in me and I in you and you bear fruit. Now let's ask the question, why would Christ ask them to remain in him after he said he was leaving them? They're, he just said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. You can't come right now. You'll come later, but you can't come. I am leaving you, but now he's commanding them, remain in me. How can they remain in him if he's not there? His word. It's his word. Verse 7 compares abiding with him by letting his word abide in us. Verse 10 emphasizes the obedience that comes from that. That this abiding here is to remain in Christ means to remain in his word and let his word remain in you. That if his word is in you, if his word is your cherishing treasure, then he is abiding and remaining in you. If I can define it this way, that abiding simply means cherishing Christ and his word in such a way that it changes your affections and your actions. That to abide in Christ means cherishing Christ and his word in such a way that changes your affections and your actions. That letting his word abide in you so that you walk obediently to it. Now, I just really want to highlight the simplicity of this passage here. Let the word dwell richly within you. Let it dwell in you. Let let God's word dwell in you, and you'll bear fruit. 
Let's not, let's not get too theological that we miss the simple point that Christ is saying. Just remain in me. Abide in me. Let my word abide in you and you'll bear fruit. Remain in him. And that's what he's commanding them, period. And what does that abiding look like? If I can illustrate it this way, if, when your children come home, they start acting differently and they start implementing these random phrases that kids use, right? They start saying these random things and, and start talking a different way and acting a different way. Parents, what's like, normally like the first thing you ask your, your child when they say something foreign? Where'd you learn that? Right? Where'd you learn that? Right? Th- that's what we ask. Why? Because we see that our child has been impacted by something so much so that it's affecting the way that they're talking and acting. They've watched something or someone, and that something or someone has impacted them in such a way that it's changed their speech and their life. In a simple way here, they've been influenced by it. And he's saying to abide in me, it means that my word should take such residence in your life and in your heart that it now changes your affections and your desires and your speech and therefore your actions. That's what it should do, that God's word should transform inwardly in such a way that it changes you. And that's why Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Don't just know it. You should, but let it dwell richly within you. Now, no matter where you are in your Christian walk, you'll never reach a point where your abiding has been fulfilled, okay? This this is an ongoing endeavor that we should be seeking and striving for even deeper ways of how can I abide in my Lord? How can you abide deeper in Christ? Excel still more, believer. We'll talk about more of this later, but, but for now, abide. Abide, abide. We have to move to our third relationship that that Christ describes in the vine. The first relationship, the Father's attention to the vine. The second relationship, the believers abiding in the vine. The third relationship we're looking at now is the unbeliever's accountability to the vine. Because what's equally important about this is that abiding in Christ is not a recommendation. It's not as if, Okay, you want to take your, your, your Christian life to a super level that only few reach? Abide. That's not what he's saying. It's not a recommendation. It is a command. And it's an imperative that comes with grave consequences. Because the one who does not abide is still accountable to the vine dresser. Whether you abide or not, you're still accountable to the vine dresser. Look at verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Some scary terminology here. He's used to describe the the eternal consequences of the person who does not abide in the vine. That simply put, they're removed, they're dried up, and they're burned. Now, why don't they abide? Why don't these branches abide? It's because they have not been cleansed. They may, uh, they may be around the vine and amongst the branches, but they don't abide because they're not of the vine. He's expanding on the thought that he, he said in verse 2, when he says that every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Why does he take that branch away? It's not bearing fruit. But look here, he says this branch is in me and it's not bearing fruit. 
So what is this the picture of? Someone who was in Christ, was saved, and now they just stopped bearing fruit, and so now he chops them off, last try, strike three, now you're burning in hell. Is that what he's saying here? What does it mean if this branch him and does not bear fruit? And now in verse 6 says all these branches that don't bear fruit will be taken and burned. What is he getting at here? Well, first in verse 2, when he says that every branch that does not bear fruit, this is an ongoing action. In other words, any branch that does not continually bear fruit, if the mark of their life is not fruit, a fruit, I guess fruitlessness, if I can make a word, if there's no fruit, if that's the mark and the trait of their life, that there's never any fruit, I take it away. And why do I take it away? Because it was never connected to the vine. They're described as being in him, but not in a salvific way. They were, in other words, they were with the branch. They were around the branch. They, they, were, they were in the church. They, they attended Sundays. They were involved in ministries. They were around Christians from the outside world. It looked like they were a part of the vine. They were around it. They were there. They were there. But they were never in the vine because they were never cleansed. They were never born again. I think in the context of this, this chapter and this book, actually, the closest illustration of this is Judas Iscariot. That one who was around the vine continuously. If you were in that time, you would think, oh, Judas, he's one of Christ's disciples. He knows the Lord. Yes, he was with him when I saw Christ do that miracle. He was in him, right? You would think that. But Jesus saying here is he knew from the beginning he was never in him. And so everyone who is around the branches, amongst the branches, around the vine, but yet are not bearing fruit, is destroyed. This is a sober reality and a wake-up call for the church because there are many people in the church who profess to be amongst the branches, who profess to be a branch. But how can we tell if they're truly of the vine? Where's the fruit? Is there fruit? An honest question is, how do I know if I'm abiding? Do you bear fruit? Where is the fruit? This is not my words. This is not my assessment, my, my checklist. This is what Christ is saying. Is there fruit? Because he did not say here, although it's true, but he didn't say everyone who rejects me will be burned in hell. He doesn't say everyone who doesn't follow me will be, will be burned. No, he's saying here, whoever does not abide in me and bear fruit will be burned. Is there fruit? I mean, this should cause us to sit up a little bit right now, right? Because if I profess to know him, Ask myself, where is my fruit? Evaluate the fruit in your life. Is there fruit? If you say you abide in the vine, an honest, hard question for you to chew is, do I have fruit in my life? Is there fruit? Are there fruits of repentance? Are there fruits of the spirit that are marked in my life? Is there a fruit and a love abiding of God's word in my life? Is there fruit in my life? James 2.26, faith without works is dead. Is there fruit? Because if there is no fruit, you may not have been cleansed. And so he gives a harsh reality that all are accountable to him. That regardless of who you are, if there is no abiding in him, if there is no fruit then we can ask a serious question, is that branch in the vine? But hear this, for even these harsh words 
or I should say harsh, but serious grave words of our Lord. There's never a point here where you should hear those words. And if that does apply to you, realize now that he, as the good vine, will welcome anyone unto his vine. That if you want to come to him at any point, he will gladly accept you. I want to look at Joel Joel chapter 2, verse 12 real quick. I'll read it for you. But here this passage is written, uh, speaking in the book of Joel about the day of the Lord, Christ's harsh return, and he's going to bring swift judgment against the unrighteous, against the wicked. He will judge rightly. But in the midst of this judgment, in the middle of this judgment here, in this book here, there's a sweet glimmer of hope for anyone who would turn. In Joel chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. I want you to hear the words of the Lord now. This is the words from the vine dresser, okay? He says, now, even now, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. In other words, with true contrition, with true brokenness over your sin, return to me. You realize you've been a hypocritical branch this whole time. Return to me. Return to me. Verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments. And now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That's the heart of the vine dresser one. One who will rightly deal with the dead branches, but one who will gladly welcome the repentant branch who comes to him. He desires to build and to produce fruit. There is no fruit. Turn now to the Lord. So while we are commanded to bear fruit, take heart to the 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 road map here. That is to abide. We must bear fruit. Abide. He in you, and you will bear fruit. The fruit here, as we've seen, it's the evidence of that faith. Abiding now is the response of that faith. That that fruit here is not something I work for. Like, I'm going to work to bear bear fruit. I'm going to do these good works because I need to find fruit in my life. That's not the starting point. The roadmap begins with the response of faith of abiding in Christ, his word in you, and he produces that fruit. Now, it is necessary to explore, how do I richly abide in the Lord? Believer, how, how how do you richly abide in the Lord? If this is what he wants for us, If this is what I'm commanded, what you are commanded to do, I think we have to have a good understanding of how do I do this? How do I richly abide in him? I want this. I need to pursue and dive deeper in this. Can I say again simply? It's just to let his word consume you. All right? I I know that's elementary. I know that's Sunday school. I know it's the answer, read your Bible and pray. No, no, but I, I don't want you to hear that. I want you to hear, let his word dwell richly within you. Be consumed with his word. But practically speaking, this also involves dogged discipline. All right? It involves de- determined discipline to allow his word to dwell richly within you. Now, we know I'm supposed to abide in Christ. And you say, yes, I I do. I do abide in Christ. I do abide in Christ. Praise God. But let let me ask you this. If I told you I was running a marathon, all right, I have a marathon I'm running, and it's next week. And you're like, oh, wow, you're going to do the 26.2 miles, right? I think it's 26.2. You're going to run the mile, the marathon. So, yes, I'm going to do it. So what's your training been looking like, Chris? Man, let me tell you. So every morning I get up at 5 a.m., and then I run for 15 minutes, and I go back home. 
so what do you do after that? Uh, go to work. The, what else do you do? The next morning, I wake up, 5 a.m., and I run for 15 minutes. So your marathon's next week. Yes. So, so how have you, have you progressed from there? So then the, the next weeks and the previous months, I woke up at 5 a.m., and I ran for 15 minutes every single day. Man, I'm ready. They're going to look at me like, you're not ready. You're preparing for a marathon? Yeah, you're preparing for 26 miles. You're running for 15 minutes every day? You can't tell me you're ready and preparing for a marathon if you're doing this simple fifth grade training for track and field, right? I mean, this is not true training. That to truly say when we abide in Christ, when we say we abide in Christ, I don't want this to turn into a a legalistic thing to to guilt trip you and think, oh, I don't read enough of my Bible every day. That's not the purpose here. But what I really want to ask is how much does the word enrich you and dwell in you? And how much are you changed and transformed by it? I'm not asking how many minutes you spend reading the Bible a day. I'm asking how much does it richly dwell in you? If he's saying abide in me, he's not saying spend this amount of time with me every day and do this on your calendar, this, this. He's not saying that. He is saying abide, let it dwell, remain in me. That should really be the conscious question of our heart of is this abiding in me? Is it living in me? Is it a rich treasure with me? Is that what is happening within me? If I am to abide in Christ, it must remain richly within me. Because hear me, as directly as it may sound, I'm speaking to you, I'm thrice convicted by this very message. Because we can be very busy in ministry, very busy in so many things in our schedule, and not produce fruit. Because we are more concerned with doing things in our own strength, for our own purposes, and for our own glory, really. That we can be so busy and not produce fruit. How can we produce fruit? By letting his word change and transform my affections and my actions. Remain in the vine by having his word inform and rule your thoughts, your convictions, and your goals. Which means, yeah, I need to know the word. I need to know it first. How can I grow in my knowledge of the word and, and how to study it? If I know that I need to let it dwell with me, I need to rightly understand it so I can understand its depths and then understand how to apply it and understand how to live it out. I need to, let, I need to grasp it. I need to know it. I need to nurture that. How are you growing in your knowledge and study of the word? What does that look like? Is there growth in that area? Where are you placing yourself under the teaching of the word? Where are you letting the word speak to difficult decisions that you have to make? How does the Christ word speak to those decisions you have to make daily? And even big decisions, small decisions. How does his word speak to the struggles you're facing right now? Right now. Right right now. There are current problems and issues you have right now. How does his word speak to those issues? Because I need to go to where I know to be transformed and changed. And how does that change my life right now? That is dwelling within me. Now, <clears throat> I want to machine gun you with some further ways to abide, all right? Now, again, like I said, I know the temptation is to turn this into a legalist thing of like, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm good, right? And that's not the goal. 
And I think it's also sometimes I'm doing this to not let me appease my conscience that I've abided well, right? That's not the intention. But this is to get us to question and get us to, to, to really dive deeper of how am I abiding and how can I grow in this? And obviously this is not an exhaustive list. This list can go on and on. But before I do that, Ephesians 5 verse 18 gives us a big picture of this, or a good picture. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now here he's given a passage, essentially walking in the Spirit. What does the fruit of walking in the Spirit look like? His word is consuming our heart and our lives so much so that nothing that comes out of our mouth is nothing but the truth and the sweetness of his word. That, I, that it comes out in, in songs, in thanksgiving, in, in adoration, in worship, in encouragement to my brethren. Right? These, it's, it's filled my heart and my life so much so that when I need to encourage someone, that encouragement is not just, hey, just buck up. But this encouragement is press on for the God is your refuge and your strength. He is a present help in the time of trouble. Though it does not feel that way, God, he has a present abiding peace for you. Confess this to God. But this abiding now, it works out of walking in the Spirit. This fills out what does it mean for you, believer, to walk in the Spirit. It means to be so filled with the truth of God that it does manifest in how you speak and your hopes and your affections and your encouragements. So thanksgiving, obviously. Thanking for what? For his truth. Let me thank God constantly, often for his truth. Obviously, Bible reading is an obvious one, I hope. But even more than that, take it a step further. I remember one of my, my old pastor, Pastor Steve, gave this um, application that I think is very helpful that I try to do often is that when you're reading your Bible every day, it's good you're reading. But after you read, take one truth for you for that day. What is one truth in your Bible reading that morning, that evening, whatever you do it, what is one truth that you can take for you with the day that you would chew on? That this one truth, either one verse or one truth about what you read, that you can just meditate all throughout the day on. What are you chewing, what are you chewing on that day, right? What, what's the truth you're taking with you that day? Because that is letting it dwell richly within you. I don't just read it and understand its purpose, but now how can I really think about this truth throughout my day? Memorizing the word of God. That's obvious as well. Now I want to memorize it. I want to meditate on it. That goes again with, with the chewing, with the thinking on it, bringing it back to remembrance. What is what you can meditate on throughout the day? Sitting under the preached word or taught word of God. Sitting under the, the, the sound preaching of his word. Along that lines, listening even to sermons throughout the week. Even in our community groups that we have, the design is not just to build fellowship, which it does, and to build accountability, but you discuss the Sunday sermon. How else can this apply to my life? How else can I let this dwell richly within me? How else can I walk in this? Even after church, it's good to talk about the game, but you know what's even better? Talk about what the word did in you. What stood out to you? You know what was convicting to me? What was convicting to you? What did you think about that? How can I be praying for you in this week in this way? Even beyond that, praying the Bible. When you do pray, inform your prayers with the word of God. Inductive Bible studies. 
teaching the word to others. Even if your gift is not teaching, if you're not gifted to teach, I hope you teach your children the word of God. Let it dwell richly within your home. That this joyful dependence upon the Lord consumes God's word. So that along with Peter's confession, we can say, where else am I going to go? I mean, this is the word of eternal life. Where else am I going to feed on? Where else am I going to be informed by? That as you abide in him, he in you, as his word works in you, that what he does is he begins to work in you to desire to do what is good. And then therefore you act and do it. That's what his word does. That as you chew on it, as it convicts you, as it transforms you, that it changes your desire. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, essentially, that it's God who's working in you to will, to desire, and to will for his good purpose. That his word is changing your affection so that I want to do what is right, and now I do it by his own strength for his own purpose. I'm bearing fruit. That that's the fruit of abiding. That let God's word do that in you enables you to produce fruit so that's for his good pleasure. And so when God does that that in you, as you take in his word, as it cleans house, as it builds up, as it breaks down, as it puts back together, as it cuts going in, as it cuts coming out, what he does is he changes those affections and desires to turn away from sin, to love this even more, to love righteousness even more, love Christ even more. It changes you and changes your actions so that you do that out of a love for him, producing that fruit, and then the vine dresser looks down at that branch and says, man, that is a faithful and fruitful branch. Let me get some more fruit of it. Let me prune it some more. That's what he's going to do in you. So abide in him so he can do his good work in you. Are you abiding in Christ, Christian? As a faithful branch, joyfully surrender to this pruning hand. Remain in the vine. Remain in the vine and let his word dwell richly within you. Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for your grace that enables us to do anything. I am so grateful that you give us hard teaching with the sufficient resources of your Holy Spirit. I am so grateful that Christ already accomplished and redeemed us and cleansed us so that we can do what you've called us to do. Father, I'm grateful that you are a good vine dresser. And Lord, what we need this morning is to grow and to abide in our Savior. So Lord, would you expose maybe even some dead branches? But even more, Lord, I pray that you would bear more fruit through us. And that is a difficult prayer to pray, to pray for more fruit. Because Lord, what we're asking for is more pruning. So Lord, give us the right heart to understand the pruning process. And to even more endure it joyfully knowing, God, that you design and desire to do all things well. Lord, do this work in your sheep. In Christ's name, amen.